0: But if we don't talk about the other kind of fear that the, the Bible really does talk about, the fear that makes us, as, as you said in the opening, say, like Peter to Jesus after he calmed the storm, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. If we've never experienced that kind of fear, then we, we, we don't really know the joy and comfort of the fear that comes from forgiveness.
1: Does Doctrine Really Matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine. An Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is Matthew chapter eight. You may remember it, this is that frightful moment when the disciples are in a boat with Jesus and a storm erupts, and they are, to put it very mildly, mildly, they are just terrified. Uh, they uh, they fe- are fearing for their lives, and they are begging Jesus to save them. Uh, they they really do think they are going to perish. What happens next, though, is perhaps surprising to us, but also uh, a bit sobering as well, Jesus gets up and he not only rebukes the waves, he rebukes his disciples. And he says to them, you have little faith. In that moment, when the, the sea is suddenly calm, what happens next is quite remarkable, the disciples recognize, they realize, their fear was misplaced. Here they were afraid of the winds and the sea consuming them. And now, in light of what Jesus has done, by a simple command, they actually fear him more. Sometimes our translations uh, don't quite capture uh, the gravity of this moment. Sometimes our translations will say something like they marveled. But as Michael Horton has pointed out, it may be better to translate this as they feared. They feared Jesus in a way that was quite healthy and correcting. How ironic it is then that today in the 21st century, our fear doesn't seem to be Godward anymore. Rather, our fear seems to be, well, Everywhere else, we seem to fear man in a way that cripples us, paralyzes us, but also in a way that creates a certain anger, a certain hostility, whether it's politics or debates over gender or debates over America itself and religious liberty. Our fear tends to rise to the surface. And most recently, it doesn't actually expose a fear of God, but actually exposes a fear of man within us. The end result of this is quite staggering. Do we actually, if our fear is placed in man, do we actually have the ability to recover any type of sanity that returns us to a biblical model? Even a theological model for what it means to live Karam Deo before the face of God. Well, I have asked Michael Horton, one of my favorite theologians and friends, to come on the Credo podcast to talk to us, maybe even rebuke us a little bit, maybe a lot about where our fear should be and where it has been most recently. Many of you know Mike from his many books, he needs no introduction in many ways. You know him as Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, Perhaps you've read uh, some of his writings uh, because he's the founder and editor-in-chief of White Horse Inn and uh, Modern Reformation magazine. And you also know him from, from Core Christianity. Uh, some of his fa- some of my favorite books uh, are ones that Mike has written uh, his two volumes most recently on the doctrine of justification are just uh I, I, i'm constantly recommending these both to students and to pastors. perhaps you've also seen his systematic theology, the Christian Faith, another book that I recommend as well as his smaller book Pilgrim Faith but Most recently, Mike has also written a book addressing uh, our engagement with the culture, and it's called Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us, published by Zondervan Reflective. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast.
0: Matthew, it's a pleasure. Anytime I have the opportunity to uh, be on your team, I'm really glad to, to be a part of it.
2: Well, Mike, we have uh, gotten to know each other a little bit over the years, and, uh, you know, I started off reading many of your books uh, because you started writing so young. <laughs> I've always it's just amazed. I know how to do. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, early some, on.
0: some say that I don't know how to do that.
2: So. <laughs> Well, I remember early on picking up your books on, say, the Doctrines of Grace, for example, and then following you as you started to write on covenant theology, and then eventually you started to to write, uh, you know, even a systematic theology. But I think what, um, and and maybe this will surprise some listeners, I think what I I appreciate appreciate about you most is interacting with you behind the scenes. Um, Yes, you know, many know you as a writer and, and a teacher. But uh, some of my favorite uh, interactions with you have just been in conversations. Uh, Sometimes we're talking theology, sometimes family. Uh, But uh, I have appreciated so much just how uh, there's not two Mike Hortons. There's not Mike Horton, the theologian. Your theology really does. flow into bleed into who you are as a person. And so I just, I know, I know that's uncomfortable for you to hear. No one likes hearing so much praise, but I just want to, um, express my thankfulness for you.
0: Thank you, Matt. That means a lot to me.
2: And Mike, you know, given the, the timeliness of this episode, I, I, I just have to mention this because, uh, many of our listeners, um, who have followed you over the years are aware that, uh, there was quite a scare recently with, uh, a heart surgery uh, that was unexpected and that you underwent. Um, I think I speak for many when I say we're so glad to see that you re- have recovered from that so quickly. Um, how, how is that uh, maybe a terrifying moment in some ways, but at the same time um, I think it's okay if I share this, uh, you, you mentioned to me just this odd uh reassuring sense of peace you had in the midst of it all
0: yeah you never you know you wonder sometimes how how am i going to die um (laughs) because people people have different experiences you can't expect you know um a a good death the puritans used to say a good death is is not necessarily a a death without anxiety or fear uh per se some people fear dying not where they're going to go or anything but just the process and uh, it, it's not, it, it's not fear, fearing or being anxious about, uh, that dying well is dying in Christ. Mm. And I really sensed that, um, I, I was told to say goodbye to my family. The doctors, uh, said, be prepared, you know, um, and it was a real serious emergency. So I, uh, uh, didn't expect to come out of it. And I, after saying goodbye to them you know, said hello to Jesus. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm coming home. I'm looking forward to seeing you and we're going to have some interesting conversations. Uh, but, uh, I just, I, I had, I had no, no question about where I was going. And I, I, I carry that with me now that, that, uh, you know, whatever fears I still might have of the process of dying, I don't have any fear of that. And you know, when you, I I make this point in the book, you know, long, not long, but just before I had this uh, sudden emergency, I I talk about how really the fear of death is the mother of all fears. Mm. It's the fear of death. Even the philosopher Heidegger said that Uh, many psychologists have said that. Um, But more importantly and authoritatively, God's word says that, that until the sting of death is removed namely our condemnation under the law. Until that's removed, we are not only afraid of the process of dying, but of what happens next. And it's that fear of death that that, that makes us frenetic in our fears of so many other things.
3: Mm.
2: You know, it, this is such a fitting transition because your own, you know, Coming to really face to face with that fear uh, what it, the fear of death as you, you as you mentioned, but ultimately a fear of God that resulted in a a peace in your own you know moment of of trial thinking this maybe this is it maybe this is this is the point in which i'm going to to see Christ um, it you know when when we think about the way that the Bible and, and this is sometimes maybe missed in the church I, I think that's fair to say we talk about a lot of things but fear is not one we typically want to to mention but but when we look at the way that scripture describes everything from the Christian life to who God is to the story of Israel and the, and and even uh when it moves in the direction of death and resurrection fear is it it, it tends to just be a blanket that that uh, cloaks all of this, so that that brings me to a most central question um, why what is the fear of God, and why do, why is God so intent on on conveying the significance of this fear uh, for mm-hmm. for us to have a proper understanding not just of who He is, but how we should then we should respond and, and live.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. It, there are, I argue in the book that there are two kinds of, of fear. Fear has its kind of two-tone sense, and one you might call legal, the other evangelical or law and gospel. Um, first of all, there's just the fear of, of God that comes from, first of all, is ontological otherness. Mm. That is, even apart from being a sinner, I'm a creature. Right. so you know one time i went and i visited the uh the the uh, lord chancellor of england reformed guy um wonderful man and uh so i went to Houses of parliament and went to his uh you know got through security and everything it was such a, a an ordeal finally got to him and uh, he was so generous and hospitable but i was shaking
3: uh
0: <laughs> uh as the guide took me up the elevator yeah, I felt like I was going to see the Queen, and um, that's just another uh, sinful human being. Why is it that the angels, whenever they appear, angels? I mean, these are creatures too. Why is it that when, when angels appear, they always have to say, "Do not be afraid." Yeah, calm down. You know, anybody who says, you know, I had a vision of an angel, much less of God. And they describe it in casual terms. Yeah, you would be sure that, that they're making it up. Yeah. Uh, because in the Bible, people are terrified, and they mistake the angel even for God, because mm. the angel is so glorious. So, so imagine what God is. Isaiah only has a vision of God. And he says, woe to me, for I'm undone. For I'm, a, I'm a, an unclean man and dwell among an unclean people. Or I have seen the Holy One of Israel. When we catch the slightest glimpse in Scripture, in the Lord's Supper, in baptism, in fellowship with other believers, when we, when we catch the slightest glimpse of the Holy One of Israel, it's no longer the, the other person I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of myself. I am undone. Mm-hmm. I am unholy. I am coming apart at the seams in the presence of the Holy God. And that is a really, um, let's just say, it's a great wake-up call for all of us <laughs> to, to, to take our place among the, the, uh, those who need uh, not vindication, uh, uh, first of all, but mercy. And so God's fear, the fear of God comes, first of all, from that distance, that sense of you are, you are incomprehensible. Uh, You're not my pet or my mascot or my party's mascot. You're not, you're not uh, something or someone I, I uh, have carry around on a chain or have a bobblehead in my car. God is transcendent in his holiness and majesty and could crush me in an instant without any problem with justice. Mm. Then there is the, the fear of God that comes from the law. Okay. So there's just creature, I'm a creature, but I'm also a sinner. And God's law condemns me. The law is good, but I'm not. And so I'm crushed in the presence of this God, not only because I'm a creature, that doesn't really crush me, that just moves me to praise and awe and worship. But as a sinner, I flee from him, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Um, When I hear his footsteps, I run from him, I hide myself, I try to you know, cover my nakedness with fig leaves. Hmm. I do all sorts of self-justifying and so forth. And God loves me too much to let me do that. He strips off all the stuff I'm using to hide from him. And he says, just acknowledge who you are. I'm not only a creature, but a, a sinner, a rebel against me. And yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now the fear is gospel or evangelical fear. And that's why we read in, in Psalm 130, verse 4, for example, um, with you, God, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared.
2: The impact of of that psalm, and and I think this comes out, Mike, in, in, in countless ways as you write. Um, I mean, you, you make this point again and again when you say things like, if we have a fear of god then that drives out the fear of everything else it's it's almost as if if we have a proper fear of god like you're describing um, this is not just mere respect for god no this is so much more this is far more profound than that
0: yeah uh, it begins with terror
2: yeah if that terror is present then it puts everything else into proper perspective which now now let's I mean this may be really uncomfortable. Uh I mean we we talk about this type of fear in unbelievers um as as they come up against the judgment of God. But there's also a place and you go here uh to to say as we look at ourselves as those who are you know called religious or is this type of fear actually present in us or is it being uh manipulated or masked or, or even disguised in a way that actually uh, gives the appearance of fear, but underneath, it, there's nothing of the sort. Um, it, it, you make this point in a very profound way uh, when you say, did you know that it's possible to live an outwardly pious life, thanking God that you're not like the godless, secular humanist, but without any genuine fear of God in you, Mike, explain what you mean by this, because this is one of those sentences that it's very uncomfortable to hear. <laughs> well, because we all yeah. fear this. Uh, am I a hypocrite? Uh, am I actually condemning others as if I, if I'm speaking for God, but all along there's no actual fear of God in me.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, huge, huge question. I think this is where the burden really falls on on us as pastors, preachers, because it really is not the the, the sole responsibility of parishioners to experience this, this utter undoneness before the majesty of God. It really happens to us through preaching the word. Mm. And so if we get up and we say, uh, you know, uh, fear here doesn't really mean fear. You know, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom fear all over the Bible. It's not really fear. Well, in uh, the Greek equivalent is phobos, phobia. Um, It's fear. Fear is fear. It's terror. It's actually wanting to get away from the source of that fear, run away from it. Um, That kind of sense of the sublime, you know, the, the sublime at once attracts us by its beauty and repels us by its Terrifying majesty. We need to experience that, not just know that in our minds, but experience that. But we can't gin it up. It's something that comes from the preaching of the word. And it's interesting, uh, John Calvin, um, the Geneva reformer, said to Cardinal Saddleto when the Cardinal was trying to bring Geneva back into the Roman fold I have found, Calvin says, among those who have not had any serious crisis of conscience before God, that justification seems like an easy thing for us to accomplish ourselves. Mm, Wow. You have never had, Cardinal, you have never had a serious crisis of conscience. He wasn't just saying, you know, you don't believe the right doctrines. Yeah. He was saying, you you haven't had the right kind of experience before a holy God.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean this is really the moment that Isaiah, you know, this is the very moment Isaiah is is talking about in which he comes before a God who is holy 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 and mm-hmm. Isaiah out of all people Isaiah is is undone. Isaiah is the one yeah. that drops to his knees and feels as if he is he is about to be ended. Um
0: yeah, I I think you would agree with me t- sending people who haven't seen it, uh, uh, kind of younger generation might not be familiar with it. RC Sproul's the holiness of God. I think it's the opening, but if you d- if you don't have the book, just go online and especially watch his his sermon on Isaiah 6. It's just uh and also Luther's insanity. Yeah. That that chapter is really remarkable too. That's what I'm talking about. It's that kind of preaching that really, I I think we short circuit things when we say, you know, we try, we try to get people to not experience that kind of fear because, you know, doesn't perfect love drive out fear? And that perfect love, by the way, is not ours. it's, It's God. Doesn't the good news drive out fear? Well, yes, it drives out the the terrifying kind of fear. Now it's a kind of filial fear, like a like a son or daughter fearing their their father and mother, the way we're supposed to, you know, fear a king or or a ruler or those in power. But it's also kind of you take care of me, I fear you, I love you because you you first love me. But if we don't talk about the other kind of fear, that, that the Bible really does talk about. The fear that makes us as, as you said in the opening, say like Peter to Jesus after he calmed the storm, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. If we've never experienced that kind of fear, then we 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 don't really know the joy and comfort of the fear that comes from forgiveness.
2: Mm. Mike, I think one of the uh sobering aspects of of what you've written, is you not only cultivate, recultivate this proper sense of terror and fear within our minds and hearts, but you actually turn around and you reveal some surprising and condemning ways, really, that expose us for not fearing God. And there are ways that we probably would never pick. (laughs) Uh, These are in fact, you even you even go so far to use the language of idolatry, and I think that's really appropriate because as you turn from talking about the fear of God to trying to understand why is it that we're not fearing God, but instead we're fearing each other, you introduce this language of idolatry to say, could it be that we are actually trying to build kingdoms for ourselves. I mean at one point you have this this statement that I, I just can't get away from. You say, well it's marvelous for God to be on our side in mercy. And this is this goes to what you were just saying, Mike. But then you go on to say, but it is dangerously foolhardy to imagine that he is on our side because we are better than others. Instead of repenting and fleeing to Christ from the coming wrath, we are angry that God has not yet Judged them, <laughs> that is the most yep. uh, the most obnoxious stench of worldliness, ungodliness, and sin in God's nostrils. So l- let's just take a a very honest look at ourselves. A- and Mike, explain to us why you are coming down hard here, and I would say rightfully so.
0: Yeah, I think if we thread the needle correctly, we go through the the legal fear to the to the evangelical fear. Filial fear that drives out all fear, then we see our neighbor in a new way. They're not a threat or a burden, they are a gift. The unborn are a gift. Abortion is an example, I think, of the idolatry of comfort. What is my life going to become? I'm going to have to alter all sorts of things. And I don't want to minimize people's you know poverty and suffering pain but basically the idol is comfort and the the fear then is of uh, this child interrupting my comfort or an elderly person the way we treat the elderly in in america is another example of that but also the way we treat people who aren't like us you know throughout this thing i'm talking about a lot of the time i'm talking about white evangelicals
3: yeah. frankly
0: i am uh, Whitey evangelical. So I've come to see some of the things that I fear that show my idolatries. Mm. One of my fears, I'm such a hypocrite here talking about, you know, the fear that drives out <laughs> fear. And one of my fears is, frankly, raising a family, teenagers in a social media world where I have less control. There's the word control. Yeah over the direction of their lives and I play God and what's happening there? Why, why, why am I so afraid? I'm afraid because my idolatry there is family.
3: Mm.
0: You know, we, we can turn our family into an idol and I need to say, no, I worship God. I fear God and whatever God does in their lives is going to be great. It's going to be good. He's made promises to them. And I have to trust God to have a relationship with them directly without me engineering it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You could go down the line, but then when you get to things like, we've got to have the right president uh, who makes us less afraid of them. And he's going to share our fears of them he's going to whip up our frenzied fears of those people over there whoever they are Mm. he's going to make us feel like he's on our side so when he tells us you're one election away from losing everything tells a group of evangelical leaders you're one election away from losing everything and they nod you think wait a second Wait, 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 wait. From losing everything, so we lose everything, depending on which Caesar is on the throne, yeah no, no, we you know, I go to India and Africa and middle east and and Asian China. I talk to Christians who have to they're not sure whether they can they're they're all going to be able to get together this Sunday for worship because. They are harassed, and they have to worship underground. They have to move the site from one house to another. Mm. When they're baptized, their houses are burnt down.
3: Yeah.
0: How about that? We are such whiners. <laughs> but here are Christians who are not afraid. They, they take Jesus at face value when he says, what's your deal? Yeah. They, they hated me. They'll hate you. Don't be afraid. Trust in me. They can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. And I'm going to raise the body too on the last day. Don't worry about it. I got it. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of confidence that would absolutely flabbergast the world. It would have so many effects on how we behave day to day in this culture. We wouldn't look at the LGBTQ demographic as a Demographic that we are supposed to hate. You know, James and uh, John want to call down fire on the Samaritan village that rejects Jesus' message. And all we read there is Jesus rebuked them sharply and they went to another village. I love that though. I, sometimes I really wish, seriously, you can't just read about all kinds of stuff of where you went and, you know, near the pool of Bethesda. You know, you had a lot of detail. Why? Couldn't you tell us (laughs) what he said? Yeah, because we need to hear that. But actually, the laconic response is what we need to hear. All we need to know is Jesus rebuked them sharply. Yeah, and they went to another village. In other words, they said, "Okay, they didn't hear it. We're going to another village. Hopefully, they'll hear it there." That's what we do with people. We're not talking about a demographic. We're not talking about the people over there, Lord, I thank you that I am not like those people over there, whatever they are. That's to to take the place of a Pharisee who thinks that he's righteous and the others are unrighteous. No, we can't call fire down. This is the day of salvation. Imagine if God had exercised judgment the day before you were converted. You know, do you really want that for these neighbors? I know people. Who have embraced Christ and been liberated Mm. from their uh, gay lifestyle? They still struggle, you Mm. know. They they will will struggle till the day they die, but they fight against it, and the dominating power of it has been broken. That is what we want for everybody Mm -hmm. we meet.
2: It sounds to me that the issue that that you're trying to address here is not whether, for example, you mentioned. LGBTQ. The issue isn't whether okay, do we think they're right or wrong. I think we we've we've established what a Christian should believe. I think what you're after here is, isn't it telling that the way we react says more about our own fear than than Mm -hmm. actually our belief, and and that raises a bigger question of okay, where exactly are we putting our confidence? You know, I can't help but think, and and you actually mentioned this. I was so glad you did this in your book because oftentimes today the rhetoric, the rhetoric is so uh, hot, and and it's it's just exploding all the time, and we we tend to get that impression that oh, this is the end, this is it, uh, it, it could not get any worse, et cetera, et cetera. Two things that are really helpful, one you have, you've already mentioned, is just travel. <laughs> just go see what Christians are doing in other places because when you do that, and I've done this too at times, when you get out of the country, you realize, wow, we, Christians in other places actually have it—they're they way worse off. <laughs> than, than their situation is way more difficult than, than what I'm experiencing. But the other thing that you mentioned— and I'd really like to talk about this for just a second is a little bit of history can help us here uh, when we go back to say the church fathers this was This was not surprising to them I, you know what this may be a good test case, you know, comparing, say, someone like Augustine to Jerome. So just a little bit of context here, uh, Rome is falling, uh, and it's worse than that uh, because the Christians are being blamed uh, as if this is the gods taking their revenge on on uh, the influence of of the Christian god and so forth. And the reaction— is so different between uh, Augustine and Jerome. On the one hand, Augustine, you know, think of his famous book, The City of God. Augustine writes this book, and it's not that Augustine doesn't have convictions. He does. He makes those very clear. But he's not surprised. Uh, In large part, it's because he doesn't seem to be placing his hope in a perfect commonwealth, so to speak, that he is now just shocked that this age isn't going to deliver on. And so Augustine can go on from there to say, okay, well, how then should we live as Christians? We follow a Christ who was crucified. Why are we surprised by this? <laughs> so that reaction, though, is so different because when you come to Jerome, Jerome says, and I'm going to quote him here for a minute, he says, almost out of bewilderment, what will become of the church? Now that Rome has fallen. So, Mike, explain to us, what is the difference between those two reactions, and, and how, does, how can that be transported to what we're seeing today?
0: Augustine says there that, that, hey, God has brought the mission field to us. What a different reaction. Do we really think that God has, oh, look at the LGBTQ community, the new atheists, look at the the rising tide of persecution of Christians, look at this and say, wow, what are we going to do now that so-and-so is out of office? Or what are we going to do now now that so-and-so is in office? Or the, the court looked like this. And Augustine, well, God has brought the mission field to the missionaries. Because Augustine's approach won out, within a generation, the barbarians were better Christians than the Roman Christians had been. So God uses persecution. God uses trials, and God uses the enemies of your nation to—I mean, look at look at what He does to Judah and Israel. Uh, uses foreign nations to sometimes take over and destroy. But that that just means more 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 of a mission field has come to us. That needs to be our outlook. Can I just say, you know, especially in relation to the LGBTQ situation, let me just get, get a couple of statistics. I have a lot of statistics in the second part of the book. 86% of LGBTs were raised in a faith community with more than three-fourths in mostly evangelical, theological, conservative, religious communities. Three-fourths. Wow. All right. And 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 then here, here's the thing, you know, what, what happens when people, quote unquote, come out, not as people embracing it and saying, you know, I'm a gay Christian and so forth, but people saying, admitting that they really are struggling with it. We often, fear takes over, deer in the headlights. We don't know what to do. We're just afraid. And so we push them away. We put them in the category of them. You're them. You're, the Lord has has given you over. We forget that when Paul says that he he has something to say to the Jews who boast in the law, in the second chapter of Romans, and G- Gentiles have a way of sinning against God, and Jews and let's just also say Christians have a a way of sinning against God. We all have our way of barricading ourselves against Him and saying we are us and those folks are them. Now here's what's interesting though. This is really uh, this is really fascinating. I'm looking for it. Uh, the remarkable statistics there, three quarters, three quarters saying that they were raised in a conservative evangelical church. That means three quarters of the LGBT population. They were, they were entrusted to what? To Christian families and, and churches. I'm not saying that they're not responsible for decisions they've made, and 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 so forth. But couldn't we have done a little bit better? Here's here's what they say, and this is this absolutely shocked me. Matt, uh, a recent study found that while only nine percent of the general population is open to returning to the faith they've abandoned, okay, nine percent of people who leave stay stay gone. 76 percent of lgbt people are open to returning to their religious community and its practices and only eight percent of these said that this would require any change in theology or convictions about sexual ethics while the remaining 92 simply 92 percent simply wanted to be loved and given real time instead of being shunned or ignored in other words I'm quoting the study 92% would be open to return even without that faith community changing their theology wow. if they loved them. Now, I don't know if that's just an excuse or whatever, but but for 92% to say they would actually be open to returning to a church that believed that homosexuality was wrong if they were loved along with the other sinners including the pastor and the elders and everybody else, man, I mean, we've got a mission field there. Do we see it as a mission field or do we see it as the enemy?
2: Yeah. Mike, that's so helpful the way you're framing it because we, I think the, the type of rhetoric you hear out there, we, many, many people just treat this as, as warfare. Right this is just the mm-hmm. enemy and and that's not to deny that and, and you you acknowledge this um in in your book it's not to deny that there aren't certain spokespeople or or representatives out there who are quite hostile right i mean we we are all aware of that, but what you are pointing out with these statistics is that actually a large percent a majority even of these individuals are not only coming out of our own churches, but even in the midst of all of this heated rhetoric, they are still very interested in returning to the church. But the way we are approaching it as a type of warfare rather than a mission field, as Augustine speaks of, proves to be the barrier in the end. Am I I misunderstanding you?
0: No, I don't think so. I think if the the church handles... I mean, it's a really sensitive moment when a a child of the covenant reveals that he or she struggles with gender dysphoria or gay-lesbian tendencies. What we do as their spiritual authority in that moment at home and at church, what we do, then, right then and there, our first response, that is absolutely crucial. How do we look at them? What is our first response? You know, Jesus' first response was Zacchaeus, and he's up in a tree trying to see Jesus, and Jesus walks through the crowd, avo- avoids the crowd, and he just looks up to one person, to Zacchaeus, and he says, now Zacchaeus is a guy Jesus could have first given a lecture to. He could have just, just whipped the guy up and down. You are you are a traitor to your own people. Yeah. You steal, you, you gather taxes for the Romans and then skim off the top. Yeah. This is, this is money from your own people. You are a cheat, a thief, a liar, and you need to repent of that before I can love you.
3: Mm.
0: No, Jesus said the first thing out of his mouth is, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. Face to face, I want to be face to face with you. Yeah. And I must, throughout the Gospel of God, uh, John, I must is code for everything that leads to the cross.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: he must do this because to fulfill all things. He must go to Jerusalem because he has to die there. He must, I must, I must. You have all these I must. And here was that key. He says, I must not i want to even but i must come to your house for dinner tonight <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the first thing he says. do is it the first thing we say to our enemies quote unquote enemies hey how about how about we go out for dinner Can, yeah. or come over to my house i want i want to entertain you is that the first thing that we think of it's not the first thing i think of I'll be honest. And that's where I need to, I need to repent. I need to, I need to realize that, uh, I'm, I'm Zacchaeus. Yeah. He's shown me hospitality.
2: You know, there's a bit of, uh, irony. I think Mike, uh, that is it it's, it's almost comical if it were not so sad. And, and it's just this, um, you know, much of what you've been describing is our failure uh, in our present moment, what you you know just mentioned, I, I think you're right to say this. It, it is a very sensitive moment. Um, but in our present moment, there seems to be a failure to take up our cross. I often think if Jesus you know were here, and he were to say what he first said to his disciples uh, when he said to them, "If I'm suffering, what do you think is going to happen to you?" I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing, of course, but this is essentially yeah. what he's saying. If, if they're going to crucify me why are you surprised that they are that they would treat you any different especially if you are faithful to me i often have wondered you know if jesus were to, to be here and to say that we would just be outraged you know you're you're calling us to to suffer and and to to be long suffering uh with those that with others, uh, rather than, like you you mentioned, Mike, calling down, you know, fire and brimstone and and wrath, the wrath of God from heaven. And uh, the reason it's so ironic is because at the same time, we love to play the martyr complex. I mean, in our social media age, this has become so prevalent in which we will lash out out of anger and madness. But then at the same time, we have a certain martyr complex uh, that gives an impression to the public that we must be the ones that are are being wronged as, as we are approaching, you know, what is Caesar's. Now, Give us some context, Mike, because maybe for for some listeners, if they're not on social media, this is this is strange. You know what in the world is a martyr complex, and and why is this happening now in in light of all the politics and the, and the social issues? So, Mike, give us a little bit of context and explain to us why this is actually really disturbing.
0: Well, first of all, I don't think there it, there may be five people who weren't on social media. It <laughs> has become it has become an addiction, and that that another subject uh, uh, i do talk about it to the extent that i rely on other people who know what they're talking about you know the studies are in just how it's rewiring our brains it it's contributing significantly to the polarization of camps so you have cnn or msnbc silo uh i only listen to to people from that end of the spectrum or the fox newsmax end of the spectrum Those are the only places where I get my news, where I I listen all day to commentaries and to pundits. We used to talk to each other. Here I'm just talking about Christians and non-Christians. We used to talk to each other at PTA meetings. We used to uh, talk to each other while we're watering the lawn uh, or getting our newspaper. We used to talk to people at the softball game where kids are playing softball together. And we talked to people who were in a different political party. That didn't matter much. We talked to people who were maybe different socioeconomic background. We talked to people who were different ethnic background, and then we go to church, and we go to people who are just like us—a CNN church or a Fox church—and you can hear it in the narthex. It's deeply politicized right now, and when people talk about you know oh poor poor us poor church, well you know. First of all, what if what if the church were the church? Let's focus on the health of the church. If you have a church where people get more worked up over masks than over the Holy Trinity,
3: hmm.
0: over the doctrine of justification, over the commitment to to uh, growth and sanctification, what really grips people in the pew and pastors? is whether you wear a mask or not, if that's the flag, the new flag that we wave to say, us over here, you know, like like the tour groups where the leader of the tour raises a flag to let everybody know we're over here. That's what the mask thing really is. Uh, It's not about loving our neighbor. Uh, It's not about questions that that Christians can legitimately disagree about. It's a flag. And I know people... it really surprises me when i talk sometimes to people who were elders
3: mm. in the church
0: elders who don't go to church anymore right because they disagree with their policy on masks and i i think you know how committed were you as an elder all the people you told they have to come back to church um they've missed you know eight sundays in a row now you don't because you disagree with the mask policy. Mm. Really? It's not really because we're being persecuted. Peter says, look, if if you're being persecuted because of Jesus name, that's one thing. But if you're being persecuted because you're a busy buddy, then <laughs> then you know, you deserve every bit of it.
3: Yeah.
0: Um that that's what he would say to us right now, I think. We are busy buddies. We are they're not really suffering for the name of Christ. I saw a friend, someone I know and respect, in an interview, and it was all about the masks. And the whole thing was a testimony to uh, taking a stand against the masks. And I, I was waiting this person in particular to use this opportunity to to talk about Christ. Yeah. But of course, the the interviewer only wanted to talk about. Uh, politics and so did the interviewee Mm. that's where we are right now i'm shocked by it all i i have quite a bit at the end of the book on racial fears and i don't know if you want to talk about that but i think that's one of the saddest chapters i had to write because it's it details the statistics
2: well let's let's mike let's go there for i know we're running out of time but i i think it's I think our listeners uh, will want to hear this. You know, when we, you you've touched on uh, you know everything from putting our hope. Uh, and, and by the way, for our listeners, Mike does this. Uh, it, it, the whole second half of the book is devoted to this. So he talks about everything from you know what do we think about this idea of Christian America uh, to how do we understand religious liberty to what's going on with these fears, uh, the fear of man versus fear of God when it comes to, say, LGBTQ communities. But at the very end, Mike, you do transition to talk about what you call racial fears. So talk to us about some of these these statistics you mentioned. I mean, you've mentioned some of them already with the LGBTQ uh, community and, and how surprising this is, Maybe some don't know this that it comes out of our own churches, but what exactly is going on with these statistics you mentioned? With uh, when you talk about racial fears, and and how should that how should that influence maybe some of our our posture, if I can use that word, as we're thinking through this very controversial issue today?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, well, we all, we know about the explosion of racial crimes against Asians. For example, a woman just is walking to church, old, an old Korean woman walking to church and uh, gets uh, beat up. There are instances I've heard of a young person walking out of church and uh, yelling to an Asian person across the street. China woman, go, home, go back home. So you just come out of church singing uh, Amazing Grace and you're hurling abuses. So this isn't even hurling abuses toward people who are trying to curtail your rights of free speech as as Christians. Now we're talking about this fear of the ethnic other. And so what I do, I'll just summarize briefly. I really wanted to understand this. So I relied on others who've done a lot of sociological work on this. I thought, okay, why is Sunday the most segregated day of the week? I know a lot of it has to do with the past and redlining districts, and and you know we, we just live in different neighborhoods, part, partly because of real estate companies and so forth. But anyway, why is it the most segregated day of the week? What's the thing, especially between white evangelicals and African Americans? I, I looked at that, and it, is it that our African American brothers and sisters don't believe the same thing we do? They, they're not really evangelical
3: in their conviction no
0: actually you know on a doctrinal scale way off the charts compared with white americans generally black americans generally are evangelical white americans are not white evangelicals don't differ from black evangelicals on basic doctrines well what about things like going to church and bible study and involvement They beat white evangelicals, hands down. Okay, it's not that. It must be politics. They're Democrats. Again, there's a history there. So there's a deep commitment to the Democratic Party. Well, yes, but they push back against the Democratic Party on abortion and on family values, whereas white evangelicals almost never push back on anything Republican. So, all right, it's not politics, necessarily. Hmm. What is it? And and then the sad statistic, uh, white evangelicals are a uh, demographic most likely in America to say they don't believe in interracial marriage. They would like to have a law passed that doesn't allow immigration uh, anymore. All right, so this is really, In one statistic, one study, uh, abortion was way down the list, I think fifth or sixth, and immigration was, was the top, and guns was right below it. So here we are in a situation where people get riled up about masks, guns, immigration, and abortion is way down the list. It's not because of abortion that a lot of evangelicals vote Republican. It's because of these other issues that have been fueled in recent years at the top of the ladder. I'm not talking about whether you vote for President Trump or not. Uh, I'm not talking about whether you're a Republican or not. I'm talking about why we are so afraid of, of the ethnic other that we don't have Black, Hispanic, Asian friends, close friends that we we get to know, uh, understand. We don't have these relationships. And then we go to church, and if an African-American or Latino or Asian person showed up, they would feel really uncomfortable, like going to a a persnickety grandma's house who has plastic on the furniture and says (laughs) to to your kids, don't break anything. You're welcome to be in my house, so don't break anything. No, it's God's house. It's Christ's hospitality being extended to us and to everyone, Mm. right? So whatever we're doing in church that makes us white evangelicals has to stop. That has to be eliminated because what is really our bond? When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what is it in heaven? Revelation 5, 9. And they gathered around the throne and worshipped the Lamb, saying, Blessed are you, for you purchased with your blood people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign. They will reign forever. Who's that? We. Who's we? Asian, black, Latino. Pacific American, Turkish, you name it, believers from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people and nation. Our churches should as much as possible, given the, you know, the, the, the sociological sins that have happened over many years, churches should really work hard to reflect that unity that we already have in Christ mm-hmm. in
2: heaven. Mike, it seems like what you're trying to get at here is, you know, we often talk about that future day, but should there not be a sense in which, uh, however fallible and however partial, we are imaging that day to come right now because our bond is actually in the gospel of Jesus Christ itself?
0: Yeah, exactly. In the realm of the kingdoms of this world, not the kingdom of Christ, not in the name of Jesus as citizens, our African American brothers and sisters take part in marches for you know against incidents of of violence well we often look at the the TV at that point and shake our heads and say oh it's falling apart it's you know we're fearful and so yeah. forth but that's then we'll we'll march for pro-life values we'll march in an anti abortion march and some people who claim to be evangelicals, will even storm the U.S. Capitol bearing crosses And John 3.16. So it's amazing. White evangelicals haven't been oppressed the way black Christians have been oppressed. And yet there's been no black march that has ever stormed the U.S. Capitol and uh, uh, entered into the Senate chamber. That's because of you. My name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. That I think the sad diagnosis that God gives us today.
2: Mm. Mike, I want to give you uh the last word here. Uh, but at one point uh you, you say something that I, I just have to 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 quote because uh it is is quite convicting. You say we are really mad at each other and the angrier we become, the higher the ratings and votes soar for those who exploit it. This is not Persecution, but folly. And then you say, so, so there you're identifying that martyr complex. But then you say something that uh, really captures the last point you made, Mike. You say, in my calling as a minister, and so here, you know, you're speaking from personal experience. In my calling as a minister of Christ Church, I must say that if the U.S. should lose the rights of its great constitution, there is no need to worry. The church still has the rights of its greater commission. Now, Mike, I mean, that is so convicting because often the rhetoric today, it, it does not come out of that mindset at all. It's, it's Jerome. Rome has fallen. What? How is the church going to survive? It's rather than Augustine coming at, at this and saying, well, what, what is the city of God? And, and where is our confidence truly placed? So at the end of this, I, I want to give you the last word because maybe we can do something constructive here for a minute. And I don't want to leave our listeners discouraged, though there is much to be discouraged about. But ultimately, Mike, you, you actually give a remedy, a medicine that I think is quite helpful. As you're reflecting on this, you talk about, well, then what should our mindset be when we think about uh, what what you call and what the Reformers called and what Augustine called the two kingdoms. Um, At one point, you talk about how, well, Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all, but he rules the temporal nations through his moral law and common grace. On the other hand, he exercises his saving grace in the church. This is what you were just talking about through the word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, Mike, as we conclude here, how, how does that Helpful distinction between the two kingdoms, actually create a, a type of fear in us that is healthy and right—a fear of God rather than a fear of man. But also, contrary to critics, it doesn't put us in a posture of passivity, but actually gives us a right mindset to then approaching the culture in which we live.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question.
0: In Christ's name, I have a limited authority. Um, I I do speak in Christ's name. Uh, Christ speaks through me when I'm preaching his word. When I get up there and I just say whatever is on my mind, I am abusing that authority. I don't have authority to tell people that they have to do this or they have to do that. They have to believe this. They have to believe that. I don't have any authority to tell them that they are bound, their conscience is bound to do one thing or another, vote this way or that way, I only have authority to tell them what God's word says. In in all the other things, it's Christian liberty. You can have people in your church who are Republicans and Democrats, who watch CNN, who watch Fox, because this is where our unity is. The word of God forms people, not CNN or Fox. This is the community formed by the word of God. I would also say, let's attend to our prayers, our public prayers if we're ministers. A lot of times, you know, even if we keep temporal concerns out of the sermon, political issues out of the sermon, if we do that, sometimes in the prayers, we will unintentionally even sneak in things. For example, I used to pray, Lord, thank you that we live in a country that allows us to preach the gospel freely. And I've stopped praying that. That is a bad prayer. America doesn't let me preach the gospel any more than Z President Xi in China lets Chinese people worship. They have, we have our commission from Jesus Christ: go into all the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. That's our commission. Our king is Jesus. He's not the king of America. He's the king of the world. Our king tells his kingdom, the church, what the mandate is, what the mission statement is, and what the methods are for achieving that mission, which he's going to achieve through us. If we pray for the police in a violent uh, event, let's also pray for the victims. Of police brutality. If we pray for freedom to preach the gospel, let's make it clear we're not asking Caesar to let us preach the gospel. We're going to do it anyway. It'd be nice if he got off our neck, (laughs) but you know we're going to do it anyway. Then we might really face martyrdom. (laughs) I mean, that's a long ways off, but then we might really face martyrdom as a lot of Christians around the world do. And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Look. Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever we face, whatever fears we have, that is Jesus' promise. Hmm. Not just the gates of hell won't be able to crush us, it's that the gates of hell won't be able to withstand the advance of the gospel to the very depths of hell itself.
2: We've been talking to Michael Horton. Many of you know him as Professor of Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He's also the founder and editor-in-chief at White Horse Inn and also Modern Reformation Magazine. Uh, He's the author of many books, including The Christian Faith. But his most recent book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears that Divide Us, well, this is a book that is so timely. It addresses uh, a very sensitive moment that we are experiencing in our culture, but it does so with biblical wisdom, taking us back to the fear of God, warning us against the fear of man, and uh, even calling out those fears that divide us in a way that actually runs counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you haven't picked up this book, I would encourage you to do so. It's published with Zondervan Reflective, and make sure that you take time uh, not just to read Mike's thoughts on what is the fear of God, but to actually start appropriating that fear for a variety of cultural controversies that occur in our present day. I think as you do so, you will find Mike to be uh, just a sure guide, one that is sane and one that will also uh, return us to the type of sanity that honors Christ Jesus.
1: Thank you, brother. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith, and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.